in microbiology with a minor in medical microbiology at University of Puerto Rico. In her free time, she enjoys going to the beach and painting. Join me in welcoming Dr. Lopez. Thank you. So thanks, as she mentioned, I'm Lloyd, I go by Dr. Lopez. Um, I'm one of the third years here. And uh, my presentation today will be delirium prevention, um, detection and treatment in the geriatric population. This will be more of a guide for general hospitalists. As mentioned, there's no financial or professional disclosures. Now for objectives uh, today is recognize the signs and symptoms of delirium and hospitalized geriatric patients specifically, differentiate between what altered mental status and acute delirium is, and then review evidence-based management for acute delirium in geriatric patients hospitalized in the medical ward. Um, the reason I made it more specific is because we do have uh, a little bit more information, especially in the ICU setting, and I wanted it more to be in the general hospital ward. For our outline, we'll begin with a the, the, uh, couple of definitions, then criteria for delirium, um, morbidity and mortality associated with delirium. Um, management will be um, the diagnosis and risk certification current management, clinical trials, and we'll end with the questions in our survey. So first of all, altered mental status. Um, the first thing we need to know is that altered mental status is actually not a diagnosis. It's more of a sign or a symptom, so it's not used as a diagnosis. It describes a nonspecific uh, changing baseline level of awareness, cognition, attention, or consciousness. Uh, common synonyms for altered mental status 
tend to include confusion, encephalopathy, disorientation. And prior to a couple, like five years ago, it also used to include acute cerebral um, dysfunction. Um, it is a common reason for hospital admission and is associated with poor outcomes, including mortality in approximately 10% of patients. Now, delirium, it is an acute cognitive disorder. This is a diagnosis. Um, it is characterized by altered awareness, attentional deficits, confusion, and disorientation. Um, older adults greater than 65 years of age are at greatest risk of developing delirium during an acute illness, um, as are individuals with an orderly neurocognitive disorder, like mild cognitive impairment and dementia. New onset delirium, though, uh, patients alone translates to a high financial burden on the healthcare system. It is thought to be a preventable event in around 40% of cases. So things have changed a little bit um, to actually diagnose delirium. Uh, a multiple of uh, schools of thought have used the DSM-5 criteria which they say that delirium is defined if criteria A to E are fulfilled, meaning uh, disturbance in attention or awareness, if it develops over a short period of time between hours to days, and represents a change from baseline to that patient. Uh, disturbance in cognition like memory deficit, disorientation in perception, et cetera. Um, and then if the disturbances in criteria A and C are not explained by another pre-existing established or evolving neurocognitive disorder. Let's say, for example, a stroke patient. Um, evidence from the history, physical exam, or lab findings uh, show that the disturbance is a direct consequence of another medical condition, toxins, or multiple etiologies. As for delirium risk factors, as mentioned, age greater than 65, uh, cognitive impairment or dementia, that's what we call delirium, like superimposed on dementia. Uh, prior history of delirium is a risk factor. Sensory impairment like vision or hearing, uh, immobility, impairment in activities of daily living, dehydration, malnutrition, and history of alcohol use or substance use disorder. Typically we see those in younger patients, but you can still see them in patients greater than 65, and then multiple comorbid conditions. So this table, um, I know it's a little bit uh, hard to see, but basically it's saying the same thing about predisposing factors and the triggering agents of delirium. Um, we're starting with the predisposing factors uh, defining vulnerability. Um, they include advanced age, neurocognitive deficit, frailty, multi-morbidity, sensory disorders, anemia, substance use, depression, social isolation, and now triggering or noxious agents could include surgical intervention, which is very typical, psychoactive drugs like antipsychotics, antidepressants, or tranquilizers, um, anticholinergic drugs, being in the ICU, as mentioned, doing another surgery, um, acute blood loss, acute infections, disturbances of um, electrolyte and water balance, which is common to our population, sleep deprivation, especially being in the hospital, um, immobilization and coercive measures or mechanical restraints. Urinary catheters and being in a foreign, foreign environment is also considered part of the uh, triggering events.
Now, the pathophysiology of delirium, we still don't have a clear uh, pathway to it. There's been a couple of hypotheses, meaning initially it was thought to be only due to an imbalance in neurotransmitters. Now, what we're thinking is more uh, vulnerable population, especially the elderly, as we mentioned. You get the event, and then you develop the delirium. So basically, as I mentioned, you get being vulnerable, being in the hospital, being here for surgery, etc. You get the exogenous or endogenous factors, meaning uh, a UTI or uh, electrolyte imbalance, or taking an anticholinergic, or they gave him some sedation because they were altered. And then you develop the delirium. Still, going through the neurotransmitter thought, they haven't said it's not the cause, but now we think it's not the only cause. So starting with the anticholinergics, um, the cholinergic system appears to play a central role in the pathogenesis of delirium. Um, anticholinergic drugs therefore increase the risk of incident delirium. Anticholinergic delirium usually presents with motor hyperactivity, cognitive and psychotic symptoms, and it's associated with EEG slowing. And some of the agents include atropine, scopolamine, oxybutynin, um, tricyclic antidepressants, and benzodiazepines. Uh, but also opiates and NSAIDs um, also bear an anticholinergic risk, especially in our um, geriatric population. Dopaminergic um, agonists at D1 and D2 receptors increase the risk of delirium. There are known interactions between um, cholinergic and dopaminergic transmission. There's an anatomical and functional overlap between these transmitters, which have also been shown within the cerebral cortex. So any subtle change, um, balance between these systems is a prerequisite for intact cognitive performance. So you, the patient is not on a dopaminergic, but um, he, they get, or was on a dopaminergic, and you get them an anticholinergic, you can actually develop delirium afterwards. Some dopaminergic substances include L-dopa, um, bupropion, and cocaine is actually one of them. Serotonin and other neurotransmitters. So for different serotonin receptors and different brain regions, um, cholinergic deficits could be associated with both serotonergic deficits and serotonergic excess. Um, serotonin can also inhibit cholinergic transmission via dopaminergic activation. So if you think about it, all of them are technically related or connected. Um, further neurotransmitters that are potentially involved in the pathogenesis of delirium include glutamate and GABA. Um, a decrease in GABAergic stimulation is likely to be the central mechanism of delirium after benzodiazepine withdrawal. Now, as mentioned, the hypothesis of only it being the neurotransmitters is also changed because we are also now agreeing that it's due to an inflammatory process as well. Um, they have a central role in the development of delirium. The disorders occurring outside the brain, such as inflammation, trauma, surgery, can therefore also trigger delirium. Um, in the context of a systemic inflammatory reaction, cytokines are released, um, which cross the blood-brain barrier, and by activating microglial cells releasing pro-inflammatory cytokines, um, cause an inflammatory reaction in the brain with damage to neurons. In addition to this um, direct neurotoxic effect, the cytokines can also cause disruption of neurotransmitter synthesis and release.
The other part will be polypharmacy, which is very common in the patients that we see here. Um, due to frequent polypharmacy in the elderly, uh, medications play a major role as triggers. Um, up to 12 to 39% of all delirium cases in the elderly may be classified as um, pharmacogenic. In general, polypharmacy, they say it's like taking five or more medications should be considered relevant risk factors for um, delirium. And then age-related changes are important for adverse drug effects include the uh, reduced elimination capacity of the kidneys and liver, um, the decrease of water, lean body mass, and albumin, and the increase of uh, body fat percentage. So this um, table, some of the papers I found, it says the medication classes with known delirium potentials, especially the neuroleptic medications, opioids, benzodiazepine, antihistamines, um, H2 receptor antagonists, steroids, TCAs, and anti-Parkinsonian drugs. Now going for the morbidity and mortality of delirium. Although delirium may result in a significant physical and psychological cost, it is also associated with a substantial economic burden um, with an estimated attribute cost of 38 billion to 152 billion annually in the United States alone. Delirium during critical illness is associated with nearly a threefold increased risk of death the following day for patients in the hospital. But according to this paper, it's not associated with mortality after hospital discharge. This was by Hughes. Um, and they quote that from 1,040 critically ill patients, delirium was common, occurring in 740 patients, or 71%, for a median of around four days. Um, hypoactive delirium occurred in 733, or 70% of patients, with a median of three days. And then hyperactive occurred in 185 patients, or 18%, and a median of one day. Um, delirium on a given day in particular, the hypoactive subtype, it had a p-value of 0.003%. It was independently associated with increased risk of death um, the following day in the hospital, so it, it is uh, related. And then hyperactive delirium was actually not associated with an increased risk of death in the hospital. The p-value was like 0.19. And then among hospital survivors, neither delirium presence nor duration, regardless of which subtype it was, either hypoactive or hyperactive, um, was associated with mortality after hospital discharge. So the important um, takeaway point from this is the morbidity and mortality of delirium is basically in the inpatient setting, in the time where they're in the hospital. Afterwards, it basically doesn't matter if they had a history of delirium, just to make it a risk factor, though. So how to manage delirium? As mentioned, the diagnosis of delirium is primarily by clinical means. Um, it's detailed exploration and observation as well as physical examination are indispensable for this. Um, the first step is to determine the timeline for the mental status change and the circumstances surrounding it. Like mentioned, any new medication, any drug use, trauma, anything. The diagnostic clues are inability to focus attention, um, loss of the ability to think with the usual clarity and coherence, uh, limited perception of environmental stimuli and inadequate response to them, 
And cognitive disturbances such as perceptual and memory disturbances often um, striking situational disorientation. This is what we would call your alter mental status patient, which is why we mention it's more of a symptom or a sign than a diagnosis per se. As mentioned, the screening tools for diagnosing delirium, the DSM-5 criteria, yes, it's the gold standard, it's what we should be using, but the caveat is that not everybody can examine and attest that the DSM-5 criteria are met, so this is when the screening tools were used to have an easier time di uh, helping diagnose these patients. Um, this confusion assessment method, or CAM, I believe all of us have heard about it, it includes four fundamental features of delirium. Um, acute onset and fluctuating curse, inattention, and either disorganized thinking or larger level of consciousness. It's only CAM here because it's for the hospital setting, but everybody that has done an ICU rotation knows that we do have the CAM ICU and it's tailored to ICU patients. But we're, the reason I don't go over that is because as mentioned, we're going in the hospital setting only. Um, compared with the DSM-5, this scale has a high specificity for delirium diagnosis relatively efficient and it can be administered by a variety of health professionals, which is why it's preferred. But there are additional commonly used scores for non-ICU patients. Um, they include the uh, delirium rating scale, the delirium observation screening scale, nursing delirium screening scale, and a recent one called the 4T. Um, it is brief, it does not require additional test uh, training and it can be performed by anybody, techs, nurses, MAs, doctors, This is an example of what the four um, AT uh, screening test is. Um, I don't think you can see it that well, but um, it will be a screening instrument. It's designed for rapid initial assessment of delirium and cognitive impairment. A score of four or more suggests delirium, but it's not diagnostic. So more detailed assessment of mental status may be required to reach a diagnosis, hence why it's only a screening tool. Um, but a score of one to three suggests cognitive impairment and more detailed um, cognitive testing and informant history taking are required. A score of zero does not definitely exclude delirium or cognitive impairment, but again, more detailed testing needs to be done. So clinical care pathway of delirium, the mainstay, mainstay of treating delirium is actually preventing delirium from developing. Why, that's why it's so important to use the screening tools. Um, if you can use the DSM-5 and actually diagnose it at that time, great. But once you know the population at risk, you can then try and prevent it. So I found this uh, diagram interesting. It was one of the papers I found. Um, they say the patient is in the community. You have the acute illness, you're hospitalized. And then in the circle one, it says identifying high-risk patients, which is the important part. Then you do prevention of delirium, treatment of the illness, or delaying illness that for whatever the patient went to the hospital. And then including you manage the delirium, you discharge the patient, and again, you go back to the community. Um, the multi-component patient-centered approach basically is patient is admitted, you identify them as high-risk, you prevent delirium, you manage delirium, and then you prevent uh, further physical deterioration because that's a sign of worsening delirium and it still puts them as at risk of developing delirium later on. And then this one is a hypothetical model for the interrelationship between delirium and dementia. 
and potential opportunities for prevention. Um, you have the prevention strategies we'll, we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, you have the precipitants, you have the vulnerable uh, brain, you have the ones that are resilient, well, no delirium, but then the ones that are vulnerable, the vulnerable population that we talked about, they develop delirium, and during the acute um, phase, you get the neuroinflammation, and after you need delirium of chron or chronic phase, you have the novel mechanisms like neural dysfunction, neural injury, or acceleration, in this case, they were going with um, dementia. Uh, neural dysfunction, neuronal injury, um, and then developing of dementia. So this part got cut off a little bit, but basically is the management, as you say, management of delirium. Um, one of the most important mainstays of treatment is delirium prevention, as I mentioned, and avoidance of noxious stimuli. Um, and then the acute treatment is divided into pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic approach. As mentioned, if prevention strategies did not work, patient, let's say our typical population, a 75-year-old came in, had abdominal pain or UTI, you know they're at risk for delirium, but being in the hospital room, taking labs in the middle of the night, not sleeping well, patient develops delirium. The first thing you should do is the non-pharmacologic approach is the one that we typically write, delirium prevention precautions, keep blinds open, TV on, talk to the patient, family at bedside if able, et cetera. So this um, table shows the multi-component non-pharmacologic approaches to delirium prevention. Basically, orientation and therapeutic activities, which is what we always mention, provide a clock, calendar, uh, reorient the patient to time, uh, place in person. Uh, fluid repletion, encourage patients to drink, conceal parenteral fluids if necessary. Um, early mobilization is really important. Um, keep walking aids, um, encourage all patients to engage in active range of motion exercises. Uh, feeding assistant, uh, follow general nutrition guidelines and advice from dietitian as needed. Um, ensure proper fit of dentures. I cannot tell how many times you have a patient, oh, they're not eating, but they had dentures and they're not on the patient, so they cannot eat. Um, vision and hearing, um, resolve reversible causes of the impairment. Ensure hearing and visual aids are available and used by those who need them. As a person who wears glasses and is basically blind without them, I cannot imagine waking up in a hospital not knowing where I am, forgot the day, and I don't have my glasses. I would get altered, I would get the arm at that point. So please make sure that your patients have your, their hearing aids, have their glasses, everything they need. Um, sleep enhancement, avoid medical or nursing procedures during the sleep if possible. Um, schedule medications to avoid disturbing sleep and reduce noise at night. Infection prevention, look for and treat infections, avoid unnecessary caths, um, implement infection control procedures. Pain management, one of another common cause of delirium. Um, assess for pain, especially in patients with communicative difficulties. If you see them grimacing in discomfort, begin and monitor pain management in those with known or suspected pain. And then hypoxia protocol, assess for hypoxia and oxygen needs. And psychotic, uh, psychoactive medication protocol, this is what we should be doing in every admit, but you should always go back if the patient develops delirium what meds did they get? So review medication for both types and number of uh, medications.
Now, there are times when we do need the pharmacological treatment. Um, it is necessary in cases especially of hyperactive delirium, anxiety, and agitation, um, and treatment should be based in the cluster of symptoms presented and the comorbidities. Antipsychotics, um, there is no uniformly accepted drug intervention. There's no significant um, difference in efficacy and safety was shown between typical and atypical antipsychotics. This is from a um, article published in 2021, if I'm not mistaken. Um, the current evidence does not support the superiority of atypical antipsychotics over Haldol, um, and low-dose Haldol being 0.5 to 3 milligrams per day, a maximum of three to five days, as well as atypical antipsychotics resulted actually in a reduction of delirium scores without significant differences between the agents. So it doesn't matter which one you used, three to five days at a low dosage for hyperactive delirium, it showed an improvement. Uh, risperidone, 0.5 to 3 milligrams, is also widely used, especially for, the patient, uh, for delirium in the context of Alzheimer's. This is the caveat that you need to make sure. Um, as you know, patients with QTC prolongation should not be used certain um, antipsychotics, so it depends on the patient population. If they have Alzheimer's, risperidone is actually better. Um, and then seroquel or ketiapine, 25 to 300 is the recommended for delirium and hallucinosis in the context of Parkinson's disease due to the low incidence of extrapyramidal side effects. So uh, delirium superimposed on what we call dementia or the patient with Parkinson that now has acute delirium, go with seroquel preferably. Benzos. Increase in protracted sedation may actually worsen the condition of delirious patients when treated with lorazepam. Um, there's also an increased risk of falls associated with benzodiazepine administration. Um, it can transform hyperactive delirium into hypoactive delirium. So now we went way the other, to the other way, where we did not want it. Um, the only time they mention is benzos are chosen in hyperactive delirium associated with alcohol or drug withdrawal, severe cardiac failure, or Parkinson's disease. In those cases, yes, you can. Um, trazodone, there was a retrospective medical chart review that showed similar results for trazodone and seroquel in terms of improvement of delirium symptoms. Um, but again, you can use trazodone if they have contraindications to any other antipsychotic. And then in a prospective study in palliative cancer patients, low-dose trastodone actually proved generally safe and reduced delirium severity in that patient population. Um, I know this is uh, hard to see, but basically this is a suggested algorithm for delirium evaluation and treatment. It's basically a summary of all we've talked about. Um, you have the patient admitted to the Okay, you have the patient admitted to the hospital. Um, you assess the delirium risk. Um, patient with high risk for delirium, you implement the multi-component non-pharmacological approach that we talked about. Um, identify any acute change in mental status from baseline. Is delirium present? Um, no, but then exclude other causes like depression, acute psychosis, dementia. Um, if delirium is present, you um, confirm delirium diagnosis. Identify and treat underlying causes. You need to perform a good history, physical evaluation, review the medications, minimize beers criteria, uh, potential contributing factor identified, then evaluate and treat as appropriate. 
Um, if it's not, then perform additional clinical evaluation. This includes labs like uh, CBC, UA, toxicology, <clears throat> liver function, thyroid function, B12, et cetera. If you confirm the delirium diagnosis, you prevent complications. You need to protect the airway in some cases. You need to do that quickly, prevent aspiration, provide nutritional support, provide skincare, everything that could precipitate or worsen the delirium that they already are experiencing. And then manage um, delirium symptoms. The non-pharmacologic strategies is where the A is, which is what we talked about. And then um, the pharmacologic strategies are the same that we talked about. This is what I think is very important. And if you take anything out of this presentation, um, this I think is one of the most important things. These are the type of drugs uh, substitute, and they're associated, the drugs associated with developing delirium or worsening delirium. First one, as we all know, the benzodiazepine. Um, what can you do? The, the non-pharmacologic sleep protocol. Um, Obviously, you use benzos, as mentioned, in hyperactive delirium with um, due to alcohol use. You have the opioid analgesic, especially meperidin. Uh, what can you do is local and regional um, analgesic measures. The non-benzodiazepine sedative hypnotics like solpidem, um, again, non-pharmacologic sleep protocol. Then antihistamine, especially the first generation, uh, non-pharmacologic sleep protocol, uh, pseudoephedrine for upper respiratory congestion, and non-sedating antihistamine if they have allergies. Um, a lot of time patients are not aware that they were taking a sleep aid, and it says PM, and the PM part is Benadryl, diphenhydramine, and they will say, no, I, I wasn't taking it, but they actually were. Um, alcohol, obviously, is one of them. Anticholinergics, um, if they're already on it, they recommend lowering the dose or use behavioral approaches for um, urinary incontinence, especially if they were in like oxybutynin. Um, anticonvulsants, use an alternative agent if you can, or consider stopping if patient is at a low risk for seizures. Um, TCAs, or, um, they recommend switching to serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SNRIs as well. And in secondary, I'm in tricyclics. Um, Anti-Parkinsonian agents, lower the dose or adjust and antipsychotics discontinue entirely, or if necessary, use the low doses of the high-potency agents. And barbiturates, um, that's when you can't stop them, but gradual discontinuation or substitute with uh, benzodiazepine in this case. There's some clinical trials going on, but they, um, even through my literature search, um, there were not many. But I did find this one. It says the paint one. Um, it's the effect of art therapy in preventing and managing delirium among hospitalized older adults in the PAINT-1 study. It's a proof-of-concept trial. This is in 2022. The aim of the study was to determine the effectiveness of art therapy as prevention and therapeutical approach in geriatric patients with high risk of delirium. They found that the study was not able to prove uh, the hypothesis that any specific art therapy intervention was able to prevent delirium in patients of an acute geriatric ward but it seemed to have a positive effect on the duration of delirium. Um, so, and there was no adverse events registered in relation to art therapy. So although they couldn't prove the hypothesis that a specific art therapy would work, it did show that it reduced the days that the patient had delirium. So any type of art therapy you could do with your patients, you can. 
And then the other one is the current pharmacotherapy does not improve severity of hypoactive delirium in patients with advanced cancer. This was a pharmacological audit study of safety and efficacy in the real world, it's a phase R. Um, available data were obtained from 218 patients. Um, the most frequently used agent was Haldol, 37%. A total of 67 and 42 patients had died or discontinued therapy by the time that they examined, respectively. Um, the most prevalent adverse effect in this study was sedation, around 9%. Um, they noted that delirium severity worsened after starting pharmacotherapy in 121 patients, um, 56%. And in patients whose death was expected within a few days, and those with delirium caused by organ failure, symptoms of delirium were significantly more likely to deteriorate after starting pharmacotherapy. So this shows that the best approach will be non-pharmacological to the treatment of delirium. So finally, uh, to conclude, delirium is not inevitable for older adults or those with cognitive impairment. Um, rather, it can actually be prevented in 30 to 40% of cases by using what we call the multi-component delirium prevention pathways. Um, early detection is crucial um, for adequate therapy. As mentioned, the DSM-5 criteria is the gold standard for diagnosis, but the screening tools can be used, like the 4T score, um, to help us diagnose those patients that are at risk. Um, the Delirium Prevention and Management should center on non-pharmacologic measures with reservation of medications like antipsychotics only to those who are at risk of harming themselves or others. Um, pharmacology has largely been unhelpful and at times harmful when applied to delirium management. And again, antipsychotics should only be reserved for patients who are dangerous to themselves or to staff or the uh, exceptions that I mentioned earlier. These are my references. Thank you, special thanks to Dr. Gar, who was my mentor, and the rest of the GME um, faculty. Thank you, Dr. Lopez. Um, I did not see any questions online, but if you do have a question online, please enter it into the Q&A um, bubble and we will ask that for you. Are there any questions or comments in the room? She did that well. No questions? Oh, we might have one in the chat here, Dr. Lopez. Very good talk. Did any of the papers mention the cause of mortality in inpatients with delirium? Uh, no. They, the ones that I read um, were more that it did show an increase, but usually the mortality uh, was associated with also the clinical problems they initially came in with. It just exacerbated the the process. Okay. All right. Any, anything else? All right. Thank you, Dr. Lopez. Thank Fabulous. You.